This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. We'll open up in prayer before we look at God's Word. Let's, let's pray. Father, we confess our need to you now. We confess our natural inclination to be strong in ourselves, Lord, to see hardship and challenging things around us as an indication of your absence, to be regular, to complain, and quick to, to even blame you for the difficulty. Lord, we pray that you would change our minds, literally transform our minds, we pray, as we look at your word, and that we would truly understand, even maybe for the first time, what it means to be sons and daughters of the living God, to be loved by you and even disciplined by you, to be shown to be your children by the way that we trust you. So, Lord, we pray that you would do this in our midst. We pray that you would make us a dependent people and we would seek to, to die to a desire to, to plan our way without regard to you, to walk through life without thanking you. Lord, you have been so, so good to us. Your mercy is abundant. Lord, we pray we would see that this morning and Christ would be lifted up and that you would open eyes and give us ears to hear, incline our heart to your word, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, we pray. It's in Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. Do you want to grow as a Christian? I think most of us would answer yes. Most of us who are believers, we would say, yes, I want to grow as a Christian. We should say yes. Uh, This is probably a regular prayer that you pray and that I pray. Lord, I want to grow. Teach me. Stretch me. Make me more like Jesus. I want to love like Jesus. I want to be used of you. But the problem for us is that we don't get to decide how the Lord will grow us. And that's really the, the thrust of the first part of John Newton's uh, hymn, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. This is one of those hymns that I have sung multiple times and hadn't, I just confess, paid that much attention to the lyrics. But listen to what he's, he's saying here. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he I trust has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as has almost driven me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour, at once, he'd answer my request. And by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. The song goes on, but I just love the reality of Newton's words. 
that, that God doesn't sanctify us instantly, which would be our desire. With a bolt of lightning, we pray and say amen and we are all better. But he works in our lives. So, so he works in our and through our own sins and failures and pain and suffering to mold and to make us more like Jesus. Those phrases like suffering is the best seminary and we can't make anything if we don't make mistakes. Though those seem trite, but they are true. In Knowing God, his, his, his book Knowing God, J.I. Packer observes that in Scripture, human sin isn't the end of the story. Abraham learned to wait on God's timing. Moses was cured of his self-confidence. David found repentance after each of his lapses and was closer to God at the end than at the beginning. Jonah prayed from the fish's belly and lived to fulfill his mission to Nineveh. And so in our story... In our, rather, our study of the, the book of Genesis, we've transitioned now from looking at the life of Abraham to that of his sons. First, the, the birth and the brief sketch of Isaac's life, and now the focus is turned to Jacob. Jacob is a deceiver. Jacob is a cheater. From birth, he's grasping at the heel of his older brother. Eventually, steals both his birthright and his blessing. And we know from Scripture that it was God's decree, it was God's will that the older would serve the younger. But Jacob's scheming and lying ways have really exposed a heart that is worshiping at the altar of self. Esau's planning to kill him. And so Rebekah pressures Isaac to send him away and to find a wife for him among Abraham's family. And he was, he was hurried away, sent away with Isaac's blessing, and then on the way, the Lord meets him. And this stairway or ladder descends from heaven with angels ascending and descending as a sign of God's, I think, faithful presence with Jacob. And then God's own words just really seal the deal. Look at chapter 28, verse 15. I think we should read chapter 29 in light of this promise. Behold, God says to Jacob, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until, the, until I have done what I have promised you. And so God is pursuing this deceiver by his grace. He's not going to let him go. Now, Jacob's response is somewhat conditional. Well, if you're going to do that, then I'll serve you. But it is positive. And we would think now he's heading into Haran with full faith and confidence in the promises of God. And you might think after the instance, this, this picture of the stairway and this interaction with God that he's a new man instantaneously. But that is not the story that we find in Genesis 29 and following. God's going to use 20 years of weathering this man's character to make him useful to him. But God will and always does get the last word. He will be with him. He will keep him. And that, Christian, is true of you this morning. Jacob is both a piece of work and a work in progress, as are all of us. And, and so here's what we're going to see this morning in our passage. God is always sovereignly working all things together for our good and for his glory. The main point, in other words, is he is sovereign over our sanctification. He is sovereign over our sanctification. Sanctification just means setting us apart as holy, making us more and more like Jesus, more and more like our Savior. 
Often that sanctification comes in the form of trials, suffering, setbacks, discipline, difficulties, disappointments, and hurt. Labans come into our life. But there is a purpose behind the pain. He will not let us go. He will hold us fast. And he will see that he has, that, that he has our heart. And so we're going to look at this passage in three scenes. If you're taking notes, we're just going to go through it. But we'll, we'll divide it up into three scenes. And each scene, I've got the word well in there because it all happens around a well. And there's significant things, particularly in Genesis, that happen around well. So you're welcome for that. Welcome, number, scene number one, welcome to the well. Verses 1 to 8 in chapter 20, 29, welcome to the well. Scene two, it is well at the well. Verses 9 to 14. And finally, scene three, all's well that ends well. Verses 15 to 30. Welcome to the well. It's well at the well and all's well that ends well. Again, Packer says this. This is the ultimate reason why God fills our lives with troubles and perplexities. To ensure that we shall learn to hold him fast. And so let's ask the Lord that we might grow as we look at our text together. So scene one, welcome to the well. Jacob's next move after receiving this vision of the stairway to heaven and the promise of God is described there in verse one. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. That phrase, went on his journey, uh, literally means something like lifted up his feet or put into practice. And so it's like this picture of him putting into practice what he's learned, thinking about what God has just done and said to him, and he's going on his journey with that in mind. So continue to read there in verse 2. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Since we've been studying Genesis, we know that uh, some important things have happened at water wells so far in our story. The main parallel is chapter 24. when, If you remember, Abraham's godly servant had gone looking for a wife uh, for Isaac. And everything there took place at a well, likely the same well that we have in view here in chapter 29 in Haran. And we're going to see multiple connections with that story, chapter 24, and this narrative as we go. But, but, but what we're seeing here is a well that's covered with a large stone, which would uh, protect the well from being polluted. It would uh, protect someone from falling into it. It would protect it from being people coming and stealing water. And it seems to be large enough that it takes several others to, to roll it away. That seems to be why the people are waiting for all the shepherds to gather and all the flocks to gather before they move away the stone, because it's heavy. It could also just be this is their tradition. This is the way that they do things. But Jacob walks into the scene, and, and he's, not, he's not shy. He's not super worried about upsetting convention. He's happy to take the initiative and, and sort of make his presence known by, by speaking up to the shepherds. So pick it up there in verse 4. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, it is, well, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. 
and see Rachel, his daughter, is coming with a sheep. Now, let's just take a quick inventory of what Jacob learns from this short interaction. He learns that he is in Haran, which is where he was supposed to go. He learns that uh, he is, these men know Laban, which is who he's looking for. And then he learns that, that Laban has a daughter, Rachel, um, and she's approaching right now, which is also a potential wife for him, which is why he came. So it's all right there before him. And this is why I think a comparison with chapter 24 is helpful. There it was Abraham's servant, if you remember, who was searching for a wife for Isaac in Haran. And there the servant sits down by a well, and before anything happens, he prays. He spends multiple verses reflecting and praying that God would lead him, show him the right woman, and even gives some kind of criteria to the Lord. Could you show me this kind of, of person? And then we read in chapter 24, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebecca came. Amazing providence. Well, look at verse 9 here of chapter 29. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. So God's providential guiding hand is at work in Jacob's life, just like it was in Isaac's life. And when Abraham's servant saw this kind of thing happen, this is what he did. We read it back in chapter 24, verse 26. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. He worships the Lord. He praises God for his kind providence in his life. And I just want to observe here in chapter 29 the absence on Jacob's part of both prayer and praise. It is really striking, especially when we look at the, the, almost the parallel passage in chapter 24. Instead, we really see the same ambitious, overly confident, pushy man. Uh, look at what he says there in verse 7. He said, Behold, it is still high day. Is it, not, it, is, it is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. Jacob is, is telling these shepherds that they're doing it wrong. Like they're, they're basically being lazy and, and they should be off doing these other things. They should have already watered the sheep and now take him out to pasture. He, he doesn't know their traditions. He doesn't even know them. He doesn't know what, what their reasoning is for, for gathering them together. They haven't asked for his advice, and yet he gives it freely. Maybe he's trying to get rid of them as Rachel approaches. We're not, we're not sure, but, but he is certainly a, a kind of a, a ready-fire-aim type of individual. It's like we've seen him already. And I just think this is a picture of where Jacob is that Moses is wanting to draw our attention to. Uh, we don't sense from him a dependence on the Lord or a thankfulness to God for gracious his gracious provision that is really miraculous. Friends, isn't it so easy to get up in the morning, eat breakfast, go off to work, do ministry, do sports, do family things, um, Make money, save money, have our kids help with homework and eventually do well in school and hope to retire one day. And maybe do we do retire 
and miss all of God's providential goodness to us and miss opportunities to thank him, to ask him for guidance, to actually submit our plans to his plans, to worship him for his goodness. Believer, you need to understand that God is absolutely committed to your dying to self-sufficiency. He is committed to your dying to your own self-sufficiency. He's committing to you embracing your weakness and finding your hope in him alone. And think about what it is, the the first thing that you look at in the morning, the, the first thing that you digest and take in to your heart and your soul, the first reality that you reckon with. Is it circumstantial life situations or is it the truth of who God is and who you are in Christ? Paul was was complaining to God and asking God for relief in 2 Corinthians 12, for removing, asking God to remove this thorn in the flesh, whatever that was. And God replied, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, Paul says, in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content he says, with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So friend, just think, what would a snapshot of your life this week reveal about your dependence on the Lord? Can you say with Paul that you would be content? Can I say I would be content with this list of things, with weaknesses, so that God's strength could be manifest in my life, that others would see God's strength in me. This is a process for us, isn't it? It's a process for Jacob, as it is for each of us. And we see it continue with him. Let's look now at scene two. It is well at the well. Everything seems to be going well here. So pick it up. We'll pick it up again at verse nine. When he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban's mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. Jacob is all over the place. I mean, it's, it's really fun to watch him do what he, what he does. He's not waiting around for a sign as to what he should do. He is immediately taking action. Apparently, just the sight of Rachel inspires him with so much enthusiasm, coupled with the fact that he knows who she is, that he goes and moves this apparently large stone all by himself. So maybe true love gives us some, some, some strength like we, maybe, brothers, you can remember a time when you were showing off for your spouse. It may have backfired. I don't know. But he moves this large stone all by himself. This could just be also another blatant way that he's disregarding their traditions and what they were doing. He's like, I, I hear what you're doing, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to move the stone myself. And so he moves it away, and then he waters her sheep. And I just think that... That reminds us, so we look back at chapter 24, we also want to remember forward, early in the book of Exodus, another foreigner comes to a place and he has to rescue a shepherdess from other shepherds and he waters her sheep and that was Moses. And Moses, as he's fleeing 
fleeing Egypt, goes to, to Midian, and eventually he's going to marry one of those shepherdesses, Zephora. And while he's there shepherding the flocks in Midian, God is going to speak to him, not through a dream and a ladder, but, but through the burning bush. And he's going to call him to redeem the people of God from slavery. And so let's just remember and maybe see this, the connection in our passage. Jacob, who is soon to be Israel, is about to go into slavery himself. But he's eventually going to escape, and the Lord's going to bring him out. And so, so that slavery to Laban is going to be a, a foreshadowing of Israel's own slavery in Egypt. And just as God is working in and through Jacob, he's going to be working in and through Israel to call them to trust him and depend on him. And you can go and read the book of Exodus to see how that happens. Jacob waters Rachel's flocks, and then he kisses her. He just goes for it. This is a passionate, strong, I think this is a familial kiss. Okay, so he's going to, Laban's going to kiss him in a minute too. So I don't think this is a romantic kiss. But, but Rachel, she kisses her and he weeps. Like he's, just, he's very, he's passionate about what's, about what, what, what's happened. And, and Rachel turns now to run away and to tell Laban, Laban all about what's happened. And so we pick it up in verse 13. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are bone and my flesh, my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. You are bone of my flesh. That sounds like Genesis 2, doesn't it? That Adam's word to, to his wife Eve. This is familial language. Jacob has convinced Laban that you are indeed Rebekah's son. And he goes on to tell him all of these things. Now, we don't know what all Jacob tells Laban about what's happened. But it wouldn't be out of the question for him to mention that, that he, of course, is the younger of Isaac's sons and had received the blessing, not Esau, who was the older son, and that he had, he had uh, been sent away to find a wife from Laban's own family. Surely that came up. And, and, and all of the deception, perhaps, that took... Maybe he didn't share that part with him. We don't know. But we know things aren't good at home. Jacob doesn't know it yet, but he is talking to an older, craftier version of himself. Remember chapter 24. Abraham's servant sent Rebekah to her father, and here comes Laban running. Same Laban, chapter 24, to tell, to hear about all the things that had happened, and he heard all the things that had happened, and he ran out, and as soon as you remember, he saw the gold, the rings on Rebekah's finger and the bracelets on her wrist, and he saw the many camels that the servant had. He invited them over to his house. We get a picture of Laban's character really clearly in these verses. And then after, if you remember, he got the bride's price from the servant, he tried to crawfish on the deal and say, actually, how about she stays a little bit longer? Or maybe you tell Isaac to come here and live with us. This is who Laban is. Uh, when someone kind of tells you who they are, you should listen. And in our text, he is, he is taking all of this in. So he doesn't see jewelry, he doesn't see camels. Uh, Jacob left in haste, didn't he? Fleeing for his life. But he does know about the blessing of Abraham. And he begins the process of kind of thinking through, we would think, the manipulation that's going to lead to 20 years of servitude for Jacob. And this takes us to the main scene of the text. Scene three, all's well that ends well. Now, keep an eye on the time stamps throughout this, these verses. As we go through, we're just going to go to verse 30. Jacob is now staying with Laban, and we can assume it's been, from verse 14, a month. 
And some time has gone by, so Jacob is apparently serving Laban during this month in various ways. And so we pick it up in verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? On the surface, it sounds like a kind gesture. Your family, I don't want to take advantage of you. Wink, wink. You're working for me, so so what should your wages be? You name it. Laban knows Jacob came for a wife. And Moses reminds of that by by, by this quick reference in verse 16 to Laban's daughters. Verse 16, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. When you grow up in a shepherding family, you get named things like Rachel and Leah. Rachel means you, E-W-E, like you lamb, female sheep. Leah means cow. So, shepherding family. But we read here that Leah is the older, Rachel the younger. Leah's eyes were weak. And there's tons of things written about this. And what does this mean? We're not sure exactly. Uh, Perhaps it does mean she had some sort of weak eyesight. Um, More likely, it has something to do with her eyes lacking the kind of the pizzazz or the, the spark or the dazzle, the fire that would be prized in kind of the ancient Near Eastern world. But, we, but most likely, given the contrast with Rachel, who is beautiful in form and appearance, Leah is unattractive by comparison. And so we're not surprised, given what we know so far about Jacob, to, what we, to see what we read there in verse 18. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. So remember the situation. Jacob doesn't seem to have been sent away from his family with any riches. Um, Because of the way that that he went about stealing the blessing, he had to leave in haste, which means he has nothing to offer for a bride price. Just the subtle reminder that sin has consequences. And, And often they compound on each other. And so that's why he's offering his labor as an exchange for Rachel in marriage. It's not just a random gesture. It may seem random as we read it. Why'd you do that? But he's giving a bridal price for her. And so if you think about what a month's wage would have been in Jacob's day, about a shekel, and, and a typical bridal price would be about 50 shekels. This is a, a beyond generous offer for a bridal price. Laban's reply is positive, but also very carefully worded. You, you won't hear any mention of Rachel's name when he responds. Look at verse 19. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. So if you remember when Rebekah sent Jacob off to Laban so that Esau could cool off. She said it was only going to be for a few days. And that was back in chapter 27. And so Moses kind of goes back to that phrase. And and now it seems like seven years flew by for Jacob. It only seemed like a few days because of his great love for, for Rachel. Friends, we know that it's not a sacrifice 
to serve those that we love. It's an easy thing to do. And, and, but we do see the ironic tension just building in the story. Like Jacob and Esau, we have two siblings. The older is despised, the younger is sought after. And deception is afoot. And so if verse 21 was a movie scene, it would begin with the words kind of across the screen that would fade away seven years later. We pick it up in verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my, name, for my time is completed. Again, this is very typical of Jacob, making demands, taking charge. But it could also reveal a bit of a tension, something he's picked up on, that he, he's starting to, to understand maybe Laban has other ideas. And so Laban responds to this kind of demand really quickly. It, apparently the time is up. And he says, okay, it's time for the wedding. So, verse 22, so Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. And so the, the, the wedding feast, it, it would look like this. It would, there would be a procession from the bride's home that would start there and, be, and then they would make its way all the way to the site of the wedding. And then there would be this reading of the marriage contract before everyone, followed by this huge week-long feast that would be attended by both families and then members of the community. Week-long feast. We should, we should do that, maybe. Uh, Jacob's family is sadly missing from the, the wedding, and I think that goes back to the way that things happened back home. But there would be plenty of eating and drinking at this feast, this week-long celebration. And at the end of the day, the first day, the bride would be taken and wrapped in a cloak or a veil. And she would be given then to the groom who would take her into his tent and consummate the wedding, consummate the marriage. And then the feast would continue for six more days. So that's the background, okay, for, for, for reading what, you know, the astonishing sentence that comes next in verse 23. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. So you think, well, what? <laughs> how, how could that happen? How could that physically happen? Well, think about the, the circumstances, the lateness of the hour. Darkness is, is setting in. Perhaps that parallels the, the blindness of Isaac that we saw and the deception that took place with the stealing of the birthright. Perhaps Jacob has been drinking and he's a little bit tipsy. Perhaps he's, he's um, not able to see who this actually is because she's wrapped in a veil. She's wrapped in a, in a cloak. What kind of father would do this to his daughters? Not just Leah, but both of them. He knew Jacob loved Rachel. And he is inserting what will be unending strife and rivalry and bitterness into his daughter's lives for his own benefit. There's a reason that Leviticus 18, verse 18, is in our Bibles. Not written yet here in our text, but there's a reason that it's there. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. But somehow Laban pulls it off. He had a plan to deceive the deceiver, and it worked. And Jacob is now to drink deeply of his own medicine. 
Look at verse 25. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? There must have been a sting in his heart as he uttered those words. It's the same exact phrase that was used to describe his own deception of his father and his brother. And so he is, in effect, condemning himself as he is seeking to to condemn the actions of his uncle. I think Laban is really rubbing it in in verse 26 when when he says, Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. You may do that over in Canaan. But, but here, it is not done. And obviously, he's been a complete liar this whole time. But he's just kind of jabbing a little bit at Jacob, saying, reminding him of what he had done and saying, we're above that. And so the deception is complete. Tie a bow around it. Jacob is now married to Leah. And the marriage has been consummated. And I think this is a good point to just pause and ask the question, well, what now? What should he do now? What should, would we do now? What would I do now? And as we reflect on this situation, and, and some might look at it and say, well, this is just poetic justice, and, and I do think God's justice is always right and, and true, but that's kind of like a, just a sort of amorphous way to describe it. Some would say, of course, karma, what goes around comes around. We know that's not the Bible's perspective. We do see a principle in Scripture about sowing and reaping, don't we? Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Jacob is reaping what he's sown. He's sown deception and lies from a selfish heart. And and now the Lord, in his kindness, brings Laban into his life. Jacob is being disciplined. He needs to grow in his humility in his trust of the Lord, in integrity. Sometimes the Lord will bring difficult circumstances and or difficult people into our lives to grow us. Sometimes those difficult people are just like us. God uses them to show us ourselves, to discipline us, to teach us. And we know that our first cry is going to be for relief. Like Paul, get this thorn out of me. And our inclination is to, is to feel that God is far from us. But he's not, is he? No further than a parent who disciplines his child is far from that child. He's not far from Jacob. The, the ladder, the stairway is still there. Actually, God is treating him like a son. He's treating us like sons and daughters when we are disciplined. Hebrews 12, quoting from Proverbs, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? The root word for discipline is just the word teach. And I wonder what God is teaching you right now. What's God teaching you? 
Are you in the middle of a difficult circumstance or dealing with a difficult person? Instead of relief, instead of saying, God, if you could just wipe this person off the face of the planet, I will serve you all of my days. Instead of that prayer, instead of the removal of the thorn, think about what the thorn reveals, what the person reveals. Jacob's dreams are crushed here. They are crushed. He thought he married the woman of his dreams, and behold, it was another person. It was Leah. What now? What would a godly response be to to, to wake up one day and realize this is not what I signed up for? This is not what I thought I got into. This is not what I wanted. This is not the dream that I had in mind for my life. Would it be to acknowledge the goodness and sovereignty of God? Even in this situation, he's good. He's not surprised by this. I can trust God even in this. And I can make the best of whatever situation I find myself in because God is true. He doesn't change. He has a plan. He'll never leave me. He'll keep me. He's my great reward. He's better than any pleasure this earth could offer. His plans are better. And I wonder what situation comes to your mind right now as you think about this, as you think about the situation of your own life. What disappointment that feels like it is ruining your life. What if God is using that to bring about your sanctification, your good, and to bring about his purposes? Beloved, you know it is going to be through unloved Leah and her servant maid, Zilpha, that eight of the 12 tribes of Israel will be born. They'll come through, through her. The servants in these passages are mothers of the patriarchs. Those aren't throwaway parentheses in your your text. Verse 24 and 29. And Leah, the mistaken bride, is going to be the hereditary mother of the tribe of Judah and Levi, which makes her offspring Moses, David, and Jesus Christ. God is sovereign over all of your pain and disappointment, and he is working it together for your good and for his purposes. Paul says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So he's saying, your affliction is doing something. It's preparing you for something. 1 Peter 1, 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor to the revelation of Jesus Christ. We don't know if and when this is necessary for us. God is sovereign in that. But we know that he has a purpose. We know that he's good. And we know that we can trust him. These chapters make like a, like a sandwich uh, that, that start with, with Laban deceiving Jacob. And it ends with Jacob. He's going to deceive Laban. He's going to get back at him. But in the middle, what you have are the birth of all these children. The promises of God coming to pass. And God is just showing his faithfulness despite this mess that happens all around. The author of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 11, 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So I just pray the Lord would give us hearts that are willing to be trained and not rebel against his sovereign goodness. And we can't always, like this, draw a direct connection between our sin and what's happening in our life. And we shouldn't do that. It's really clear with Jacob. It's very clear. But often we, we don't know. We just All we're left to do is what Job did and, and close our mouth and trust the Lord and know that he's good and sovereign. But Jacob is not there. And if we're honest, many of us would say, yeah, well, we're not, I'm not there either. Jacob doesn't see. He's going to try and change his circumstances with his own strength. He's going to serve another seven years for another wife. So verse 28, Jacob did so. This is taking his offer. Or let's pick it up in verse 27. Laban says, complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. So he's in the middle of this wedding celebration with Leah, and then he says, just pick up next week on Monday, and it'll be another one. Jacob did so, verse 28, and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave him his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. Just can you imagine starting a family like that? Can you imagine how that impacted Leah and Rachel's relationship? How they looked at their father, treating them like property, bargaining chips. We're going to get a taste of some of the aftermath in our passage next week of how it all goes. But the reality is Jacob has signed up to live under a taskmaster. He's a rough master. Laban is not going to be a good master to serve. And that's a little bit of a picture of what it is when we serve our sin. Uh, Our sin is a terrible taskmaster. Lust is a terrible master. Anger and pride and jealousy and envy and greed will never deliver on the promises that they make. We'll go to bed thinking about the promises, but we'll wake up with Leah every time. That's the way sin works. It is always treacherous. But the gospel says... Come, everyone who thirsts, come to me. Come to the waters. He that has no money, come buy and eat. How do you buy without money? Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? That's Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Surrender, friend, to the one who has already paid your debt. Jesus purchased a bride for himself, and the price was much steeper than we could ever imagine. It wasn't seven years or 14 years or 20 years. It would take an eternity in hell to pay our sin debt. But when the Son of God was crucified on the cross as a worthy substitute for all the sins of all of his people that would turn and trust him, he could say, it is finished It is accomplished. Your debt is paid. That's how much the beauty and glory, the the holiness and righteousness, the, the love and sinless perfection of Jesus is worth. 
And repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ alone and you will be saved and set free from the taskmaster of sin. Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. And on that journey with him, you will grow. And there will be times when you will ask that you would grow. And because you are his child, you will be disciplined. Because he loves you and he loves me, he'll teach us. It may not be the way we would like to be taught. As John Newton reminds us, so we're going to continue thinking about this hymn. He says, Yea, more with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may find thy all in me, that we may find our all in him. And when we do, we will gladly serve him and an eternity will seem like a few days. Because he's that good. He's that worthy. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would humble us. We pray that you would do so by just giving us a a clearer vision of your majesty. Lord, it's so apparent, it's so clear that you are sovereign and good and you give mercy to sinners. Lord, we see ourselves in this passage. We see ourselves in Laban. We see ourselves in Jacob. Many of us have have been hurt and see ourselves in the pain that goes through Leah's mind and Rachel's mind and Jacob's mind and what it means to be betrayed. But Lord, through all of that mess and all of that sin, you bring about your purposes. Your program of salvation for sinners marches on. Your mercy continues, and we, we, we praise you for it, Lord. Help us to trust you more. Help us to believe this. We need you, and we ask that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen.